0: Well, peace be with you. And also be the book of Esther is what we journey into today, and, and one of the major themes in the book of Esther is the idea of providence. Well, Craig Rochelle uh, is a pastor, but he was on vacation and he was with his family in a different city, different state, having a great time, not thinking about stuff in his own life from uh, his work. But he really had this intense feeling; he he should call this specific friend, and uh, he, that's a strange sense to have. He's on vacation. He's not thinking about that world. But anyway, he picks up the phone. He calls this friend. And as soon as he gets the friend on the, on the line, he realizes that this friend is in a very dark place. His voice is different. It turns out that that friend at that moment was considering taking his own life. And so what a time for a phone call. And so they had this conversation. He reminded him about the purpose of his life, the promises of God, his value, the friendship that they had, all that sort of stuff. Now, when you think about that, uh, I was so glad that that call was made because that friend took the next best step uh, on the road to recovery and, and recovered and, and became healthy again, was able to think more clearly and get the support. Um, but Craig, having that sense, right at that exact time, having his phone number on him, calling the guy, he actually picks up at the exact moment where he was thinking about taking his own life. Coincidence or providence? Providence, the invisible guiding hand of God. Corey Ten Boom tells a story uh, about a Russian woman that she met during the Cold War. And uh, Christianity was being persecuted in Russia in uh, parts in, in the Cold War. And this woman was so ill, she couldn't get out of her own bed. She was very weak. She was propped up by pillows. She could really only work her right index finger. And there were secret police around, right? You weren't allowed to have the Bible in Russian, other Christian literature. Uh, but this woman slowly translated the Bible into Russian and other Christian works one um, keystroke at a time with this, uh, with this typewriter that she had. Now, Corey Ten Boom goes over and visits her and prays, like, God, why don't you heal this godly woman? And that's when her husband interjected, God has a purpose in her sickness, Every other Christian in the city is watched closely by the secret police, but because she has been sick for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They have left us alone, and she is the only person who can translate undetected by the police. Huh. That's interesting, those details that line up so that the police never detect her as she translates the Bible into Russian, God's word of hope. Coincidence? or providence. Now, we are in the book of Esther, uh, and a big theme is providence. John Calvin, the theologian, says that providence is the invisible hand of God so that you might not always be able to see it, but it's the invisible hand of God guiding, directing, and providing, even when things seem uncertain, uh, even when you're in danger and experiencing deception, even when you're amongst people who might not be like you and might not share your values, and even when... Uh, you feel like everything is spinning out of control. And this idea of providence is a challenge to us in the book of Esther because we are invited to look for these signs of providence as we go through the story. Okay, So let's set the big frame for the story. Uh, it's in the 6th uh, sorry, rolling back to the 6th century um, B.C. before Christ. One of the big stories, the big narratives in the Old Testament is the exile of the Jews, right, from um, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, and a foreign army comes in, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple, or much of it, and many of the people, not all, many of the people uh, are exiled into a foreign land, and that is a huge uh, catastrophe for God's people. Imagine some foreign army coming in here, and uh, destroying our churches, destroying many of our institutions, and you have to go to a foreign country, you have to leave your home and your land, and everything behind the life, your life as you know it, it, that'd be just. So devastating on so many levels, but that's what happened. And so after a while, under the edict of someone named Cyrus, uh, many of the the Jews go back to Jerusalem and they start rebuilding the city and the temple. And we read about that in the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But not everyone returned. Some people stayed behind. And some people stayed behind in what we call Persia. And that is the setting of the book of Esther. It's some of the Jews who did not go back to uh, Jerusalem. And so the story takes place in Susa which is one of the four capital cities of Persia, and just so you can kind of geographically get a sense, that's in modern Iran. Okay, so this is where we are in the course of things, and by now it's the fifth century, and uh, the immediate setting is the court of the Persian king Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes I. The historian Herodotus says this about the king. He was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. As an ambitious and ruthless ruler, A brilliant warrior and a jealous lover, and put lover in quotes, okay? Now, who wrote the book of Esther? Technically, it's anonymous, so we don't know. Some people think maybe Mordecai wrote it. It's it's quite possible. And another interesting thing about the book is that actually the story takes place over a 10-year period. And so if you read it in one setting, like, oh, it it's kind of feels like 10 months. No, it's actually 10 years, and we'll find that as we go through the 10 chapters. So I want to highlight some of the biggest things for which the book is known, and here are those six things. The name of God is never mentioned. Yahweh, Elohim, the name of God is just never mentioned, and there's a purpose in that, and we'll come back to that. Second, the most famous verses are most likely in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So in a story that we'll come across in a couple of weeks, uh, Esther has risen to the prominence of queen, and it's dangerous for her to go to the king unannounced. Uh, But she goes, uh, and she's been talking to her adoptive father, Mordecai. And uh, should she go, she might lose her own life if she actually approaches the king and she's not invited. And Mordecai says to her, Esther, perhaps you have been put in your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this, and so this is a, an expression that has come into English that a lot of people use. They might not even know where it's from, but it's, it's from here, and, and the way we use it is like, okay, I'm in the situation. I was born for this moment. Just such a time as this. It might be dangerous, but I'm made for this moment, and so that is where that comes from. Third, Esther's a woman. I think it's just good to note, right? There's uh, many examples of men uh, being men of courage in the Bible, uh, less so for women. But Esther is a woman. That's one of those stories, and so it's good to recognize and reflect on her. Four, it doesn't seem very religious. Strange, it's in the Bible. So what do you mean? Well, not only is the name of God never used, no one prays. Uh, No one talks about Jerusalem or the temple. Uh, There is some fasting, but no one talks about the commandments, Uh, um, all these sorts of things, there's there's not a single miracle, like there's no miracles. And uh, there's also moral ambiguity, right? So sometimes when you read a biblical book and there's a character like Esther and Mordecai, you think, okay, these are the people that clearly this is about and we're, we're kind of cheering for them. Uh, and so you think, okay, everything they do is something that I should emulate, but it's not always that cut and dry. So sometimes I think maybe, but other times I think I'm not so sure we should be doing that. And so this is part of the reason why we relate to the story of Esther because there is this moral ambiguity and stuff that will happen. Of like, what, what was that about? I'm not so sure that's so good, right? And so there is some moral ambiguity. That said, five, a main purpose of the book is to provide the origins of a Jewish feast and festival called Purim. And so this is something that's still celebrated annually by Jewish people. This year it's on March 24th, so later on next month. And this story explains the origins of Purim, about the deliverance and salvation of the Jewish people at the hands of their oppressors. Robert Gordas writes, anti-Semites have always hated the book of Esther, and the Nazis, get this, the Nazis forbade its reading in the crematoria and in the concentration camps. In the dark days before their deaths, Jewish inmates of Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, and Bergen-Belsen wrote the book of Esther from memory, they wrote it out and read it in secret on Purim. Both they and their brutal foes understood its message. The unforgettable book teaches that Jewish resistance to annihilation. In every age, martyrs and heroes, as well as ordinary men and women, have seen in it not merely a record of past deliverance, but a prophecy of future salvation. Six, the big theme is providence, even when we don't know where God is or what he is doing. So we need to reiterate that. So a theologian named uh, Jonathan Edwards said that providence is like the waters of a river, Okay, think of a river and the water. like it twists and turns and there's obstacles and there's rocks and there's rapids and everything else. But the water goes, The water always gets to where it needs to be. That's how water flows. And so that's that's kind of like providence. God's plan always gets to where it needs to be. Now, part of the reason why that is so significant in the context of the book of Esther is because, remember, some of those people, a lot of the Jews went back to Jerusalem. Some stayed behind. And for those who did not return... Right? They had questions like, is God still our God? Is God still looking upon us with loving kindness? Is He still going to be faithful to us? Is He still guiding and helping us even though we didn't return to our homeland? Right? Providence. So, as we go through the story, and we're going to go through chapters one and two today, a good chunk of it, um, I ask you to, to look for signs of providence, God's invisible guiding hand. Where is the invisible hand of God at work? When it's not obvious, when there's danger and deception, and there certainly is those in this story. When people are living amongst people who don't share their values or customs, check. Uh, Also, when it feels like life is spinning out of control. True for Esther, maybe we can relate to that as well. Okay, so uh, usually I put all the words up there on the screen. Not going to do that because it's a lot of text and it would have taken like 10 hours. So we're going to go through the story. If you want to open your Bible to Esther, that's great. Or you can just listen. Uh, It reads so very, very smoothly. And uh, so here we begin, Book of Esther. Uh, Keep that background in mind. Beginning at verse 1, chapter 1, ESV translation. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, remember Susa is one of the four capitals, citadel, the fortified area in the middle, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. Well, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Okay, there's going to be some Super Bowl parties tonight, probably. Um, Imagine huge Super Bowl parties for 180 days in a row. And so this is to communicate to us money and power and opulence and extravagance and influence. Verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. uh, There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones... Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavish, lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was, according to this edict, there is no compulsion. So sometimes there was a custom where you needed to drink as much as the king drank. So here he's like, forget that, just give them whatever they want, they don't need to follow my lead. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, we know what that means, (laughs) he commanded Mahumam, Bithza, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zakar, Carcas, and the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Quickly, eunuchs are men who are castrated, so they don't have their private parts. Um, uh, so quite often these people were used in a royal service because they're, they wouldn't be uh, distracted by family life. They wouldn't be um, a threat to the women or concubines in the, in the king's harem for obvious reasons. So it's, it's people who have just an allegiance to serving the king. So this is part of the function of eunuchs. Verse 11, to, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come. At the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, at this time, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, we might guess why Queen Vashti said no, but we're not told, okay? Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merces, Marsena, and Memusin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, quote, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimusin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Talk about paranoid. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Well, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. Here let us see uh, the king has a lot of power. Uh, He also has a lot of pride, a lot of ego. Uh, I think in this we're also to see that the king is very impressionable. Verse 22, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, right, so they can understand, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Chapter two, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So that's a reference back to that original exile, right? So uh, the reference isn't to Mordecai, it's to Kish, Uh, his grandfather, and then Mordecai descends from him. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. This is the first time we hear about her, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, so there's the family situation that we're learning about. By the way, the name Esther means star. So it might be a bit of a foreshadowing, the rise of Esther's star in the royal court. Verse 8 So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So she's uh, hiding her Jewish ethnicity and identity, perhaps an evidence of anti-Semitism, or what we would now call anti-Semitism. Even then, verse 11, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, holy smokes, Verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. So there's a harem of wives. Concubines are like official mistresses of the king uh, who are kind of a second order uh, of women. What a horrible time. What a horrible time. She would go, uh, not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, by the way, tracking along, this is now four years after the original party. Four years have already passed, okay? Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in the sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We have not yet heard a word from Esther. Verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Okay, something's going on here. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, right, her Jewishness, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, so the threshold is the entrance into the king's private quarters, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Presence of the King. And so, it's an assassination plot. Mordecai hears it, tells it to Esther, who tells it to the king, and the king writes down that it was Mordecai who said this, okay? This is the word of the Lord. All right, we are really into it with the first two chapters, right? We are looking for signs of providence. Where is the invisible hand of God working when things are uncertain? Where is the invisible hand of God working when there is danger and deception? Where is the invisible hand of God working when we're surrounded by people who maybe don't share our customs? Where is the invisible hand of God working? Maybe when everything seems like it is spinning out of control and friends, that's got to be the reality that Esther was feeling. Just look at today's story. We're looking at what is coincidence and what is providence? Where where might God bring good out of bad? Remember Romans 8, 28? You know, God brings good out of bad for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. There are a lot of bad things in the world, but God, through his providence, bringing good out of bad in certain situations. Let me provide three possibilities from this story. First of all, Esther, God's people are living amongst people who are most likely hostile to them. Okay, why else would Esther hide her ethnicity and her religion? She's hiding it, okay? But the fact is that she is Jewish and that will motivate her to save her fellow Jews later on in the story even at the risk of her own neck. So she's in a situation where that might be possible. Coincidence? Providence? <clears throat> Second, Mordecai is for now kind of a, he starts off as a bit of a kind of a, a footnote to the story, but as the story goes on, we'll be hearing more and more about Mordecai, and he will play a bigger and a bigger role. <clears throat> so here, he just so happens to be close to two eunuchs who are discussing an assassination plot against the king. He hears it. He doesn't get caught hearing it. He hears it secretly. He passes it to Esther, his adoptive daughter. She tells the king, not only does the king foil the plot, but he writes down the name of Mordecai as the person who was the one who covered it out. Well, later on in the story, that is going to be very important for a very grand reversal of fortune for Esther and Mordecai. And so the fact that he is standing there at that time, coincidence or providence? Third example, Esther is in a horrible position horrible as a young woman she is summoned into a kind of virgin competition of beauty she's never asked if this is something that she wants to do she finds favor with the king's eunuch and then with the king himself but her position will eventually be where one where she unlike anyone else is in a position to say something that will rescue her people not only in susa and persia but in the wider world So, all of a sudden, she gets to this position. Coincidence? Providence. So, no, the name of God is not mentioned, and we might ask, where is God? But, of course, we are being challenged in this to actually look for what God is doing when there are no miracles, when it's deceptive, when there's darkness, when there's danger, when we can't see it, when no one is even praying in the story or using the name of God. Where is God working? Karen Jobes. In her commentary on Esther, right? Our Lord is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Our Lord is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Half the point of the book is to get us to start thinking about that in our own lives. Where is God at work? How is God working when we're surrounded by danger and deception or people who don't share our values and customs or when everything feels like it's spinning out of control? And so here's what I want us to do as a kind of a closing thought for this introduction to the book of Esther. It's a sentence that I just want us to dwell on for a week, and I just want you to think about it, dwell upon it in your prayer life, in your conversations, in your groups. Here it is. You may not know what is happening, but you know who it is happening with. See the difference? You may not know what is happening, but you know who it is happening with. This is the genius of Providence. This lies at the very heart of trust. When all these things are going on around us that we don't know, we don't know the outcome, and there's danger, and there's personal risk, and there's political intrigue and deception. You may not know what is happening, but you know who it is happening with. But when you get to that place, it changes the playing field in your own mind and heart. Quick illustration: When I was young, I'm probably about ten years old, whatever I don't remember the exact age, but that age you're allowed to kind of stay at home by yourself. There's no one else there. Mom and dad are coming back later tonight. And you're independent, man. Wow. You got it made. You're an adult. We're basically running the place. Ten, you know, I'm there. It's daytime and like, I'm just, I can go in the fridge there and get some crackers and maybe put a couple cookies in a bowl, put some syrup on that. This is great. Watch TV. Just, never did that, mom. Just kidding. I did that. I don't know why. It's, syrup on everything makes it better. Anyway, you're doing that. And you feel like, watch whatever I want on TV, right? But then it gets dark outside. And you're still alone, you're not used to it, it gets dark outside, oh, it's time for bed, and so you go to bed, and uh, you hear a noise in the house. What's that? And it's dark, you can't see outside. We lived out in the country, and uh, a car slows down, and then it speeds up again. Did someone get out of that car and come up the driveway? Uh, that's probably, you know, I probably shouldn't think that there's an axe murderer coming up the house, but that's what I think, Um, the wind starts blowing heavily in the pine trees behind uh, our house, and all of a sudden, all these thoughts start to come in your mind, you start to think, I'm not quite so mature, I'm not quite so adult-like as I think, right, and all of a sudden, you hear another car slow down, but this sounds like our car, and it pulls into the driveway, definitely for sure, one door closes, clunk, 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 another one, you hear keys jingling, you know, the door opens, Matthew, we're home, it's mom and dad, thank you, Lord, And all of a sudden, there's this calm that just comes over everything, and you're asleep in like two minutes. (laughs) Now, the fact that my parents were there, does that mean that it was instantly day? No. Does that mean that the wind stopped outside? No. Did that mean that the house stopped making the odd sound here and there? No. The difference was who I was with. So we have to take that and apply that to our life in general. As we go through life, as we think about those difficulties where we think we're alone, when we're not, we're in a situation which seems deceptive or, or, or dangerous or uncertain or the world is spinning out of control. You may not know what is happening, but you know who it is happening with, and that's the difference of faith. That's the difference of providence. So I invite you to ponder this this week as we begin our journey through the book of Esther in considering God's powerful providence His invisible guiding hand. You may not know what is happening, but you know who it is happening with. Praise be to God.